the scripture reading for today is Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12. It can be found on page 613 in the blue pew Bible in front of you. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Let me, uh, let me pray for us again as we come to, to this passage. Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Show us Jesus, we pray. He's the one from whom we need to hear. He's the one we need to see. He is the one that we need to love and desire above all else. Do that, we pray, by your spirit now. Amen. Uh, I want to Again, welcome you if you're here visiting, particularly if you're here for the TCU-RUF reunion weekend. I, um, 
I count it a great honor to stand up here and get to preach uh, to many of you who are friends, many of whom uh, we went to school together, and um, to stand here as a testimony of God's grace in and through RUF, uh, one who has been ministered to deeply uh, through this ministry. So it's a real privilege to be here. At the same time, um, I've struggled all week with this passage uh, with how overwhelmingly beautiful it is. And, you know, Darwin mentioned the Rocky Mountains earlier, and I thought this week that this passage and trying to preach on this is sort of like drawing a picture of the Rocky Mountains with a crayon and saying, look how great the Rocky Mountains are. Like, look how incredible this is. Or having this Thanksgiving feast before you where there are so many different things that you want to eat and enjoy and taste and you know that you might get maybe a little taste of each of them, but you're not going to be able to dig in in all the ways that you really want to. And the reason for that is that this is arguably the richest passage on the atonement in the entire Bible. And I was joking with somebody yesterday that it might be better just to read this passage and then just silently reflect on this for the next 20 or 25 minutes. I'm not going to do that, as that might disappoint some of you. Um, but it's interesting that in the New Testament, Paul will take some of the most glorious passages about Jesus. Some of these passages like Colossians 1, 15-20, or Philippians 2, 6-11, where we just heard a portion of that that's actually based on this, this servant song. And he'll take this rich theological statement that ends up filling books of commentary and he'll take that and he applies it to very specific on-the-ground needs of his people. That's what happens over and over in his letters. And that's what I want to do this morning with this passage. I want to ask this question, how does this apply to us? How does this get very specific down into the nitty-gritty details of your life and my life? And here's what I want to do. I want to try to do this by asking what is a really, really simple question... But a question that is at the same time uh, unbelievably important, maybe the most important question, and it's this. You can answer this whether you're a Christian here this morning or not. What does God think about you? Not what do you think God should think about you, giving kind of a Sunday school answer. But what do you really believe God thinks about when he looks at you? Is he angry with you? Is he indifferent to you? Is he disappointed with you? Let me up the ante a little bit. How does God think about you when you have just blown it? When you've fallen prey to that sin that you continue to fight and fight, maybe some sin that you've had some victory over for a time, and then you blow it again. How does God think about you in that moment? Uh, some of you will remember uh, from Saturday Night Live in the 90s, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Some people remember this. This is dripping with irony. Um, thinking like this could go really poorly if you don't remember the show. Uh, here, here's, a, here's a personal favorite. It says, if a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is, God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is, probably because of something you did. Uh, that's a joke, obviously. Uh, 
but there's some reality to that. We kind of think that about God. He might be disappointed, he might be angry, he might be disappointed with us and indifferent towards us. What does God think about you? The way that you answer that question is going to determine the trajectory of your life. It's going to say huge things about who you believe yourself to be and who you believe God to be. And I want you to think about what's happening at this point in Isaiah. We're in the middle of this series of of preaching Isaiah 40 to 55. This is coming to Israel who has been sent into exile because of her sin. They have blown it big time. These were the people through whom God says, I am going to rescue the world. I'm going to make my name known through you to all the nations. But they have failed big time. And this is not a small failure. This is an all-out idolatry and rebellion. And not even just kind of the the small ways we might describe subtle idolatry in our own lives. This is an all-out turning their backs on the God who had rescued them from Egypt, brought them into this land, established this kingdom, and now they have turned their backs on Him. They've said, I want nothing to do with you. And this letter, this part of Isaiah, is written to a people who is estranged from God in that way. And they are reaping the right and just consequences for their sin. So I want you to think about how might God respond to Israel? The people he saved, the people he's rescued, the people to whom he's given this beautiful mission. And they've turned their backs on him. What he does, and what we've seen week after week after week, is that he speaks words of comfort and deliverance to them in the midst of this. He's promised to rescue them out of exile and to set them free, but there is a huge question that remains. And that question is, what about their sin? How is God going to use this broken, messed up people, this sinful, rebellious, idolatrous people, to take this message of salvation to the ends of the earth? And the answer to that question comes in the form of a person. That person is the person about whom we just read, the servant of the Lord. This is the final servant song, and it is staggeringly beautiful. And we look at this passage, it's going to help you and me rightly answer that question, what does God think about you? So here's where we're going. We're going to see this, that the suffering of the servant first exposes our sin in us. It exposes our sin in us. But then the suffering of this servant also bears our sin for us. Exposes our sin in us. Bears our sin for us. So that's our first point. The suffering of the servant exposes our sin in us. And if you look back to the text, you're going to want to keep your Bibles open. I'm going to refer back to this frequently. Look at verse 13. He starts with this great statement of the exaltation or enthronement of this servant. He's going to act wisely. He's going to succeed on his mission. He's going to be high and lifted up and exalted above all else. And what's fascinating about this is that you might remember in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah has this vision of the Lord. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. 
This is the language here that Isaiah is using. This exaltation and enthronement is going to occur for this servant. But the huge deal is that the way in which it's going to come about is completely counterintuitive. Such that, as he says in verse 14, people are going to be astonished as to how or the path to this exaltation is actually going to occur. So why are they astonished? They are astonished because what's going to happen is this servant is going to be humiliated. This is not a typical enthronement or exaltation. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah is saying that this servant is going to be beaten so severely that he's not going to look like a human anymore. His appearance will be so marred that he doesn't look like a person. And this is going to be the way in which he will be exalted over all else. And so they are astonished because they're thinking, how can a rescue come from somebody who has just gotten beaten like this? Verses 1 and 2 of 53. He says in verse 2, He grew up before him like a young plant. He compares him to a young plant. He compares him to a root springing up from dry ground. And what he wants us to see here is that not only can you not look at him because he has been beaten so badly, is that even if you did look at him, he wouldn't be very impressive. He looks weak, like this small shoot that would come out the side of a tree and be chopped off. That's what that young plant is. And so he's not attractive. He's not good looking. He doesn't have any form or majesty or beauty. You and I would not look at him. And so verse 3, he was despised and rejected. And that word despised doesn't mean so much that he is, that there's sort of this... Um, Viewing him with like a, an emotional sort of response, like I don't, I don't want anything to do with him. It's more like, I don't really care, he seems insignificant to me. Like I, he, I don't really see why he matters. He's not that impressive to me at all. And so the result is he's weeping, he's full of grief, he looks weak, and so they don't even look at him. And his appearance is such that you want to turn your head from him. This is not what a rescuer looks like. Um, as you all know, we're coming off an election week. Signs are still around. Need to be taken out of our church uh, area over there too. Um, one of the fascinating things about elections uh, is how much the physical appearance of the candidates matters. Uh, there are all kinds of fascinating studies about how presidential elections changed when the debates were televised. Uh, and even this week, there was an article in Psychology Today that conducted an experiment about this where people were shown two different photographs of the candidates. And they, they knew nothing about these candidates. So they had people pulled from all over the country in these small like city council elections and things where they wouldn't have any other frame of reference for these people. So here's what the article found. It said the participants were able to pick not only the winner of the election... But the margin of victory, both at levels significantly above chance, based exclusively on physical appearance. So that, that's a little sobering too, right? Now why is that? That's because you and I know what a leader is supposed to look like, right? 
We know the kind of person we want in that role. We know what they should look like. The servant in this passage is not that. He's the opposite of that. This servant is one who is pathetic, he's unimpressive, he's ugly, he's weak, and he looks like a failure. Behold your God. And so they dismiss him because they don't see any need for him and they can't believe that it is through this sort of humiliation that God is going to sprinkle the nations or make them clean. They can't believe that this is the way in which the arm of the Lord is going to be shown. The strength of God in the form of this beaten, ugly failure. And this is where we identify with those who are looking on at the servant because we turn our faces from this servant in the same way and for very similar reasons. Why do we do this? Why is Jesus crucified so offensive to us that we want to turn our faces and act as though he's insignificant? I think we do this for a number of reasons, but the one I want to talk about is that when we look at him crucified in this way, we want to turn because we can't stand the thought that that is how bad things really are. We can't stand the thought of saying, I did this. I am responsible for this man, this God-man being crucified in this way. That's my problem. I did this. That's how bad my sin and rebellion is, and I would rather turn and hide my face than acknowledge that. To admit that my sin is that bad, that it is that overwhelming, is, is, is frightening. And that's why we spend so much of our lives downplaying our sin or hiding from it. And we do that in all kinds of ways. We do it by comparing with other people and thinking, well, I'm not really as bad as she is. Or we, we even downplay the details of our own sin in our own minds. We kind of re-narrate the ways that we've messed things up and kind of take off the hard edges so it's a little more palatable to us. Or, in your small group or your accountability group, you wait to confess something until enough time has gone by so that it doesn't feel so raw anymore. We downplay our sin because we are spending all of our time hiding from it and running from it. We are scared to death of being found out and exposed because that would mean that the image that I've been working so hard on is going to be crumbling down in front of me. And so this facade that we have up is there, and we come to a passage like this who says, now let's take that facade off. Let me tell you who you really are. Let me tell you how bad things really are. This passage, this crucifixion makes us uncomfortable. And I think that says a lot for how we would answer the question, what does God think about us? We think that God is disappointed, frustrated, that he's that father who is waiting to scold us, and so we hide and we turn our faces from this servant. What I want you to see this morning, though, because I think we can all find ourselves there, is that though we turn our faces from this servant, the servant does not turn his face from you. 
the servant exposes our sin, but his suffering also bears our sin for us. And that's what we see in the second half of this passage. If you look at verses 4 through 6, this is the heart of the passage. The, the way that, that, that uh, writers in Hebrew will work is that uh, there will be the middle portion of their writing that, that matches on either side to bring focus and emphasis to this middle portion, and that's what Isaiah is doing. 4 through 6 is the heart of this passage. It's the focus of what he wants us to see. It's the main point. And what we see is that these griefs and these sorrows that are characteristic of this servant in verse 3 are actually our griefs and sorrows. He looks weak. He looks like a failure because of us. So at the heart of this passage is a servant who suffers. It's a servant who substitutes himself for us. That's what his work is for us. And I want this this morning to dismantle or, or, or deconstruct these false ways that you think about uh, the way that God views you. So that's what I want to do as we look at, at the remainder of this passage, and sp- specifically the, the suffering of this servant. And there are three different aspects of his suffering I want to look at. The first is the what of his suffering. Look at verse 4 says that he suffered the griefs and sorrows of our sin. He said in verse 3 that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so in the biblical world, you see somebody suffering, in this, and these are words of sickness, where there's, there's visible sickness and weakness. When you see that in this ancient Near Eastern context, the immediate thought is, this is judgment for sin. It's judgment for his sin. He's suffering because of something that he did. But what Isaiah says in verse 4 is that this servant is bearing our griefs. He is carrying your sorrows. And so like a sacrificial animal, that sacrificial language from Leviticus, that the, the animal carries away this sin. He bears the sin for himself. And so all of this pain, all of this grief, all of this sorrow, all of this sickness that is rightfully ours is placed upon the servant. He also suffered the punishment for our sin, not just the griefs and sorrows, but the punishment of our sin. Verse 5, he was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those are words of extreme violence. They are words of death. To be pierced is to be pierced through, as in fatally. To be crushed is to be trampled to death. And all these descriptions are trying to get at what the, what the end of verse 6 says. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the servant suffers the judgment that your sin and my sin deserve. Why? This is the second aspect of his suffering. Why did he do this? What is the, the reason for this suffering? He suffered to bring us peace with God. This is the beginning of verse 5. And you see this in 10 and 11 as well. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And I want to spend just a little bit of time here because this is hugely important. If you're here exploring Christianity and are not quite sure what Jesus and his work on the cross is all about, this is what it's about. 
God created us for a relationship with Him in love, in this overflow of love to be in union with Him. But the story of the Bible is that we, as humans, rebelled against Him. We said no to Him. We rejected that love. And that relationship then was broken. That conflict was introduced in a, way, in a place where there was no conflict before. And so now we, by our own doing, have estranged ourselves and alienated ourselves from this God of love. And so we stand in this relationship broken. There's conflict there. There's not peace. And so the question, that one question you could ask of the Bible and trace through the Bible is how will God deal with this conflict and this rebellion that characterizes now our relationship to God? Isaiah is saying that it is the servant who will deal with this conflict. Verse 5, he does it by this chastisement of our sin being placed upon him. Verse 10, He's made an offering for our sin, which is again more Old Testament sacrificial language. Verses 11 and 12, he bears the sin of many, and so he makes many to be counted righteous. These are all ways of saying the servant has made peace. He has made peace. And in the words of Paul in Ephesians, peace by the blood of the cross. Or Romans 5.1, therefore since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 7 through 9, again, this is where we just have to say briefly what's happening here. It says that he does so silently, he does so innocently, and he does so willingly. Why is this so important to grasp? I want to answer that by giving an example I think that's going to probably resonate with a lot of us in here. Um, as I mentioned, we've had a, uh, a TCU-RUF weekend where we've had uh, multiple gatherings, which is why my voice might be hurting a little bit this morning. Um, lots of talking together, lots of singing, lots of late-night conversations. It's been wonderful. Um, Friday night, we had a dinner, and one of the purposes of this weekend was to celebrate God's work through RUF over these last, now, 16 years that this ministry has been at work on the, on the campus of TCU. Um, and Friday night, there was a dinner where the alumni had an opportunity to share. And uh, one of my friends, who's here this morning, uh, that I met freshman year, who lived down the hall from me, uh, and now, like me, has less hair than he did then, uh, he said this in this, uh, it was a, a video, where he was speaking of how God had used RUF in his life. And here's what he said. Think about this in terms of why it matters to hear about peace with God. He said, I grew up walking an altar call nearly every week. I was trying so hard, but never good enough. On weeks I didn't walk, I was simply too ashamed to go up yet again and recommit my life to Christ. Dustin, who was the founding campus minister of RUF, Dustin taught me how much Jesus really loved me. And for the first time in my life, I learned to be free and to live in peace. That's what this passage speaks to you. I know there are multiple people in this room who could say the same thing, that you have grown up maybe in a church where you, you have a constant question as to what is my status in relation to this God. I kind of know what it was last week, 
But a lot of stuff has happened this week. And I don't know where I stand anymore. And that uncertainty is paralyzing. That uncertainty will beat you down over time. And what this passage says is that you now have peace with God, not because of what you feel or do, but because of what Jesus, this servant, has done. It is objective peace. We fight to appropriate it subjectively, but it's not something that you have to feel. It's something that Jesus has done. You, if you are in Christ this morning, have peace with God. The conflict is is gone, and He has no wrath for you. Zero wrath. It has been poured out completely upon His Son, and it is exhausted. It is gone for. There is not an ounce of wrath for you if you are in Christ. You have peace with God. He's not angry with you. He's not a disappointed father looking at you as an estranged son. He's the kind of father who is willing to send his son to get you back, to make peace, to reconcile you to himself, to embrace you. That's what he's done in this servant. This servant goes down into the mess, the pain, the sorrow, the sin, the grief, and the guilt of your sin. He doesn't go around it. He doesn't explain it away. He's not pretending it's not there. Instead, he bears it. This is who the God of the Bible is. This is your God. This is what he thinks of you. This is what he's done for you. And the result of all this suffering in verses 10 through 12 is the exaltation of this servant. Isaiah ends where he began. This servant's going to be exalted by going downward through this path of pain, sorrow, suffering, humiliation, and failure, apparently. But therefore, God will highly exalt him. And bestow upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul takes this passage and he says, this is Jesus. And he is exalted. This one who has been humiliated is now exalted. And he will be there forever. What this means is that this is your God. At the heart of who God is, is a God who is self-giving and sacrificial. And what I want you to think about is how might that change your life if you and I actually believed that? What might that do to your struggle with that addiction? What might that do if you believe this to, to change the way you love and respond to your, your spouse when he's unresponsive or uncaring? How might believing this to be true change the way that you engage with your roommate who regularly and consistently is inconsiderate to you in every way you can imagine? How would believing this change you? I think this is actually a question that we should work out together, and I would recommend you do this even in your small groups. How might working this question out, believing this, change your life? 
Uh, some of you will remember uh, when the son of Prince William and Kate Middleton, the royal baby, Prince George, uh, was baptized. Um, this was not too long ago. Uh, and in the Church of England, it's the Arch- Archbishop of Canterbury who does performs the, he did perform the wedding and now performs this baptism as well. It's now Justin Welby. And there was this beautiful uh, video kind of montage put together that was an interview with him talking about baptism and the significance of baptism. And he quotes this section uh, from what is, uh, there are a couple different sources. It's either from this old French Reformed liturgy or this Scottish Reformed liturgy. And it's what I want to quote and say to you this morning because this is what God thinks of you. Little child, for you, Jesus Christ has come. He has fought. He has suffered. For you, He entered into the shadows of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary. For you, He uttered the cry, It is finished. For you, He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And there, for you, He intercedes. For you, even though you do not yet know it, little child, but in this way the word of the gospel is made true. We love Him because He first loved us. That is what God thinks of you. This is who your God is. We pray. Father, make these words true to us. Overcome our doubts, questions, and unbelief. Enable us to turn from our sin and to believe that the servant has done all of this for us. Amen. Well, we get to uh, come now to the table. And as Brian has so wonderfully laid out for us, uh, he has showed us that the way that fellowship with God, that is the way that it has had, is uh, utterly mind-blowing and unlike anything we would